Today's reading is Mark 4, 35 through 41. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat, so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So did you get asked any good questions this week? Think about your week. Did you get asked any good questions this week? And here's another question. Did you ask any good questions of anyone this week? Think about someone you spent time with this week. What question did they most need you to ask of them? You ever thought about that when you're with someone? Thinking about the person you're sitting in front of and thinking, what question does this person most need me to ask of them? Now, why that question? Because questions, good questions strategically placed, are invitations. They're invitations, they can be invitations to think up, to reflect on your life, to reflect on your circumstances. They can be invitations to hear your heart speak. They can be invitations to imagine a better future. And that's why we're spending time exploring the questions that Jesus asks. The gospel writers portray Jesus as asking 307 questions. In contrast, he's asked 183 questions, and he only responds to eight of those, and often with another question of his own. So the gospel writers portray Jesus not as someone who's going around dispensing advice or giving or or just, you know, answering, solving people's problems. But he's portrayed as a person who asks questions of people. So as we explore Jesus' questions, and as we've been doing that week after week, and I found this to be true. I, I said it might be true at the very beginning, but now I personally found it to be true. I find myself being invited into the life that Jesus offers to us. That his questions invite us into exploring this reality that, that he is offering to us. And it's an invitation into the, to living life to the full. Because those questions strategically placed, if I engage them, then they're all part of him inviting me into the abundant life in John 10.10 that he says he's come to give to us. And I hope that's been your experience if you've been here for part of this. Well, today's question emerges from the text that was read to us by Levi this morning in Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 4. If you want to turn there, there's a Bible underneath your seat or pull out your app. And the question this morning is, do you still have no faith? Do you still have no faith? And I'm going to change things up a little bit this morning. I'm going to begin with Rembrandt's portrayal, 1633 portrayal of this event, the storm on the Sea of Galilee. 
And I've invited uh, Jonathan Anderson, who is a professor of art at Biola University, and he's a very competent theologian, to orient us in this painting this morning, and then I'll return with some final thoughts. Good morning, good morning. Good to see you all. So uh, we'll spend a little bit of time looking at this painting, not as a means of displacing the text, but as a means of slowing down our reading of it, sitting in the text a bit. Uh, we'll use this uh, uh, image to help us pose the question uh, sharply. This question burns, I think, uh, and, and, uh, or, well, burns. <laughs> Uh, so we'll use this painting to kind of uh, uh, pose this question well. Um, in this painting, uh, Rembrandt imagines the scene that was read to us from Mark's Gospel, uh, but he does so in his own historical context. I mean, the, the ship he depicts here, the boat he depicts, has a lot more to do with 17th century Dutch boat building than it does 1st century Galilean uh, boat building with its mast and its sails and its rigging and so forth. Uh, Rembrandt certainly wants to be true to the biblical text. He's actually a very good, very close uh, a Bible reader, but he also wants his contemporary viewers to feel the impact of the text in their own lives, which is also our goal here this morning. Rembrandt perfectly centers the boat in the painting, both top and bottom and left and right, and it gives it this strange kind of iconic feel. It feels like an icon. It's stable. It's singular. It's centered. And yet the boat is rocked back to a fairly astonishing angle. And this has a strange effect. Uh, this is a moment of profound instability uh, for the, the men on this boat. Its occupants are in extreme trouble, as the text um, uh, tells us. And yet Rembrandt freezes this moment of trouble and stabilizes it, centers it, for us to uh, slow down and spend time with, to meditate on. It's a scene that is loud and violent, and yet at the same time presented as iconically stable uh, and seemingly timeless in a way. It's a strange effect, isn't it? A storm that is uh, presented as a kind of icon. For the most part, this is a very dark painting. Amidst the extremely dark clouds that fill most of the space, there's a tiny patch or a small patch of uh, blue sky still open in the distance. The boat is pointed toward that blue sky, but only pointed at this uh, moment, it's fairly unclear whether they'll make it to the other side of the sea, whether they'll make it back to land at all. Amidst the nearly black waters, Rembrandt uh, creates an intense spotlight effect precisely where the wave crashes hard against the boat. The artist fo focuses our attention on the impact of the wave. As we read the gospel texts alongside Rembrandt, he encourages us to recognize deep fear and desperation felt by the disciples. According to Mark, the boat was nearly swamped, and Luke attests to the fact that they were in extreme danger, is how he puts it. 
In fact, given that the gospel writers put this narrative in direct proximity to the healing of the, um, the man terrorized by a legion of demons, and all of the synoptic gospels do that. This appears right before that scene. We might read the gospel writer's depiction of the storm in demonic terms. It's described with terms that are often translated as furious or ferocious or violent. As Rembrandt imagines the scene, the sails are whipping around violently, and in fact, they're tearing. The rigging is ripping loose. There's one that's already uh, uh, sort of flying up in the air um, as if to gesture uh, uh, its own tearing loose. The cold water is crashing into the boat, soaking the disciples' clothes, and filling the boat to the point where they are in serious danger of sinking, according to the text. The painter wants us to feel their panic. They're all going to drown. They're going to drown. In a matter of moments, the boat will drop out from underneath them and sink to the bottom of the sea. They'll be left to tread water amidst these waves for as long as they're able. They're going to lose everything. Their extraordinary rabbi that they've been following will die at sea. And gradually, news will spread among the crowds that he's just left. And then gradually, they'll forget. Some of these men will leave widows. Uh, We know that some of them were married. Some of them will leave widows, perhaps fatherless children, and there's nothing they can do about it. In the center of the spotlight, Rembrandt places fairly prominently a harpoon. See that harpoon sticking out? Uh, And an oar. There's an oar right behind it. Both of these are instruments of human power on the sea, and both appear to be utterly useless in this moment. And uh, Rembrandt uh, situates both of those tools in the center of that spotlight as if to play up uh, the powerlessness. As we glance across the numerous figures in the boat, Rembrandt uh, offers us a kind of index of potential responses to this kind of crisis. Each of the figures is um, uh, responding differently, and each in his own way is struggling with the situation. Uh, Indeed, they they seem to kind of embody a range of responses to life crisis, if we can put it that way. Some of the men charge to the front of the boat, into the light, into the crashing wave, where they struggle to keep the boat intact and keep the sails intact. They'll fight to preserve the integrity of the boat as long as they're they're able. They'll, They'll fight against what threatens them. They charge into the uh, spotlight. Uh, Some of those men, as they're uh, struggling to keep the boat intact, are sort of reduced to a posture of just hanging on, uh, uh, hanging on. And if any of you have been through crisis, you know what that means. You charge into the problem and you're reduced to hanging on. The back half of the boat is dark. Whereas the front half is light, uh, emphasizing the the crashing of the wave, the back half is dark. And in the back half, we see a variety of responses. 
Uh, Parallel to those in the front of the boat, one man is straining against the rudder, uh, trying to hold the boat pointed towards the blue sky, we might say, pointed towards the the hope uh, on the other side of the crisis. Some are seemingly doing nothing. Actually, Lou, uh, uh, Lou, uh, uh, let me borrow his fancy uh, laser pointer. If you can't see, there are a few people that in the dark here that are difficult to see. This guy right here is sort of just cowering, uh, looking at the wave. Uh, and then this guy right here. <laughs> Seems to just be collapsing in on himself. Immobilized with fear, perhaps, or resignation to his own powerlessness. Uh, uh, For those of you who have been through crisis, you probably know what that moment is as well. One man is vomiting into the sea. He's overwhelmed. He's to the point where he can't control his reflexes anymore. Perhaps you know what it feels like for crisis to reduce you to sickness. One man kneels to pray. He's difficult to see. Interestingly, the man who's kneeling to pray is by far the darkest man in the boat, sort of uh, 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 folding in on himself in the, in the middle of the boat, in the dark. Um, praying certainly seems to be a healthy response to this crisis, but there seems to be a, a, a kind of... Um, uh, uh, an implication here that he's, he's actually the most removed from the situation, turning away from the situation entirely. <clears throat> Two others directly appeal to Jesus. They grab him. They yell at him. Jesus not only appears to be doing nothing, he has, in fact, been sleeping through the, the whole thing, it appears. They're exasperated, Rabbi, don't you care if we drown? Or in Luke's account, it is simply a naked declaration. Master, master, we're going to die. But what exactly do they expect him to do? He's a rabbi. They're the experienced fishermen. What are they asking him to do? Perhaps they at least expect him to be helping them to bail water. Perhaps they're simply appalled that he's sleeping during this, uh, during this time. And there's one further respondent, the man in blue who turns toward us, this guy right here. And if you count up the disciples, interestingly, he's a 13th. There are 12 others in the, in the boat, plus Jesus. He's a 13th disciple. He's the 14th person in the boat. In fact, this is a self-portrait. Rembrandt has put himself into the painting. (laughs) He stands exactly, if we zoom out, he stands exactly on the vertical center line of the painting, right at the division between the light half of the boat and the dark half of the boat. And he addresses us, the viewers, directly. In tradition, the tradition of painting, if someone is looking at you, making eye contact with you, he's asking you a direct question. He's asking you for response. 
And in the context of this painting, he's attempting to formulate a very heavy question indeed. He holds on to the straining rigging with one hand. Perhaps this rope is the next one to tear loose. And he holds on to his head with the other. Rembrandt's point in painting this narrative is not simply to visually exegete Mark's uh, passage, which he's doing. He's trying to put us in the boat and force us to deal with our own panic, our own moments of panic. Indeed, he puts himself in the boat and asks us very pointedly, what would you do if you really felt the full dread of this moment, felt the dread of death, felt your life unraveling, felt the possibility of losing everything, losing yourself. What have you done, or what will you do in the midst of the storm that you most fear, metaphorically? Few of us are sailors, I I would imagine, or fishermen. And that's a potentially terrifying question. What is the moment in your own life that most resembles this? If this is an icon, what is it an icon of for you? the moment in which it appears that everything is truly coming undone. When fear truly grips you, what do you do then? This painting, I think, is about that moment. And Rembrandt is asking us what we do with that kind of moment. Whereas the crashing wave is conspicuously illuminated, it's, it's very bright, Jesus appears in the back of the boat in the dark, back where the steering seems futile and where the ropes are coming undone. This is a powerful articulation, I think, of how crisis feels, if you've been in life crisis. The crashing, the violence, the threat of loss occupies the spotlight of one's consciousness. And everything else goes dim. It's hard to pay attention to the other things. It's even hard to see those other things. And Jesus... I don't know if this is your experience. Jesus seems to be somewhere in the back of the boat in the dark. It's difficult to see him or understand what he's doing. And in this case, it's not even enough to assume that he's somewhere at the back manning the helm. On this point, Rembrandt seems to add insult to injury. Jesus' posture visually rhymes the man, the, the one who's manning the rudder except that whereas the disciple is straining against the force of the wind and the, wind and the wave, Jesus is apparently waking from sleep. <laughs> and Rembrandt sort of mirrors their postures as if to kind of make the point. Some of the disciples do turn away from the brilliantly illuminated danger, and they go into the dark to plead with Jesus, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? In Matthew's account, the disciples implore him, Lord, save us. By this point, they've seen him heal numerous people. They've seen him exercise authority over demons, but they certainly didn't expect him to do what he did next. Jesus turns to them and asks two sharp questions. Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? I don't know about you, but those questions sting. They sting me. Uh, When put in the context of uh, crisis, real-life crisis, the moments where you are deeply afraid that your life is unraveling, we're struggling here 
In the moments of uh, my crisis, how bitter do these questions appear? If Jesus answers my panic with these questions, how much does that sting? And I wonder, what tone of voice do we hear Jesus asking these questions in? Is it scolding? Why are you so afraid? Or is it tender? Why are you so afraid? Are these questions rhetorical? Or are they genuinely inquiring of you? Do you still have no faith? Is he frustrated or disappointed or perplexed? What exactly are the disciples supposed to have faith in? What would faith look like in this situation? Isn't this a question we ask ourselves in moments of crisis? Do all of the responses of the disciples, as as Rembrandt has represented them, do all of those responses uh, uh, indicate faithlessness? Their boat is nearly swamped and is coming undone. What does faith look like when your life is coming undone? Either before or after these questions, it's before in Mark and Luke's account, but after in Matthew's, Jesus stands up in the boat and rebukes the wind. And he shouts at the waves, or actually maybe just speaks to the waves. It's unclear the tone of voice, the volume of voice. And he uh, commands them as a king commands a defiant servant. Silence. Or, in fact, it might be translated uh, in something more assertive and more personal. Shut up. It might well be translated. That seems to be the tone of the Greek, as I understand it. By the way, that is the same phrase that Jesus uses in response to the uh, demonized man earlier in Mark. Shut up to the demon, not to the man. (laughs) Uh, The man in the synagogue. And with this command, everything goes completely calm. It's at this point that the story spins off its hinges uh, for me, or rather, it's the point at which all of my categories spin off of their hinges. The gospel writers tell us that despite their great fear and panic at the threat of drowning, it's only at this point that the disciples become truly terrified. Who or what is in our boat? And with that, I'll turn it back over to Lou. (laughs) So as John has pulled out the drama of this painting, one of the things that's very clear is that when Jesus says, do you still have no faith, these aren't words that are calmly uttered on a peaceful hillside of Galilee. These are words shouted over the crashing of waves. There's a lot of volume in this picture, in this painting, in this this incident. The the sails are whipping in the wind. Uh, The boat is creaking with the wood sounding like it might snap at any moment. And so in light of that, then, one might ask, why does Jesus seem so impatient to ask this question, do you still have no faith? I think the answer is found in understanding how we might hear the question. 
Perhaps we hear the question, do you still have no faith, as don't you believe in me? Because we often use faith and belief as synonyms, but they're different, and the differences matter. I've heard it illustrated this way. You've probably heard of Nick Walenda. He is part of the Walenda family that is known for walking on high wires over places like the Grand Canyon. Well, in November of 2014, Nick Walenda walked across a high wire 50 stories above the ground between two buildings in Chicago, blindfolded. Now imagine it this way. Imagine that Nick Walenda says, how many of you believe that I can walk across this high wire 50 stories above the ground between these two buildings? And how many of you believe that I can do that with someone on my shoulders? Because he's done that before. If you believe I can do that, raise your hand. Imagine being there and him asking that question. And then he adds, who then will volunteer to sit on my shoulders as I do that? <laughs> and that's the difference between belief and faith. It's the difference between staying on the ground and volunteering to sit on Nick Walenda's shoulders as he walks across a high wire 50 stories above the ground. Because you see, faith is not about believing things. Even believing things about God, believing things about Jesus. It's about trusting. Trusting someone. It's unfortunate that our English language doesn't have a verb form for faith. I faith, you faith, he faith. The Greek does. For those of you who know the Greek text, pistio ace, it's a verb with the preposition that follows it, typically. So we substitute I believe, we substitute believe, I believe, or we substitute, we settle for I have faith. But that second one, I have faith, makes faith something we possess, and faith isn't a possession, it's a capacity to trust. So faith is better understood as something we do, it's a verb. I'm faithing in Jesus, I want to faith him even more. I'm trusting Jesus, and I want to trust him even more. Well, meanwhile, back at the storm, Jesus' question asked his disciples to consider their history with him. Do you still have no faith? Could also be, you still don't trust me? See, they had had a history with him. They'd already seen him speak and reorder reality. They'd the sick were healed with the word. Demons were cast out with the word. And they also had a history with Israel's scriptures. These were Jews. They had Israel's scriptures. Psalm 74. Psalm 74 says this, But God is my king from long ago. He brings salvation on the earth. It was you who split open the seas by your power. Listen to those words there. You broke the heads of the monster in the waters. It was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave it as food to the creatures of the desert. Leviathan was a sea creature. It was you who opened up springs and streams. You dried up the ever-flowing rivers. The day is yours and yours also the night. You established the sun and moon. Psalm 93, and this is one of like six psalms that do this. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed in majesty and armed with strength. And it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It's Yahweh. Indeed, the world is established, firm and secure. Your throne was established long ago. You are from all eternity. 
The seas have lifted up, Lord. The seas have lifted up their voice. The seas have lifted up their pounding waves. Mightier than the thunder of the great waters. Mightier than the breakers of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Your statutes, Lord, stand firm. Holiness adorns your house for endless days. These were Israel's scriptures. And they celebrate Yahweh's kingship by his reign over the seas. The seas in Israel's scriptures were always a threat or they were a sign of judgment. To reign over the seas meant that you had authority, that you indeed were Lord of all. So it's no accident that, that Israel's scriptures celebrate Yahweh's kingship with his reign over the seas. And these men were schooled in Israel's scriptures. They likely had this echoing through their ears many times as they were out on the water. But now it's Jesus who speaks to the wind and the waves. Is it possible that Yahweh himself is in the boat with him? It's interesting that that Jesus in that moment never prays. He never says, oh dear Heavenly Father, please stop this storm so these guys won't be so scared. He doesn't pray to God and ask God to stop the storm. He speaks. Who else speaks to the wind and the waves and they obey him? So am I suggesting that they should have just left Jesus alone? They just should have sat there in the boat if they really had faith in the midst of the storm? I mean, imagine Rembrandt's painting with 12 guys just kind of calmly sitting there looking out, lined up on the edge of the boat looking out and having a Bible study together while Jesus was asleep in the back. I mean, maybe that's how we might paint it these days. They're doing the right thing in turning to Jesus for help, but they do it in a posture of panic. We're going to drown. Don't you care that we're going to drown, they say to Jesus. See, the problem with the disciples is not their belief that the storm is deadly or the belief that Jesus could change things if they awaken him. The problem is their faith. It's their trust. So when Jesus asks, do you still have no faith? He's asking not about the nature of faith, but about the object of faith. If faith is about trusting, then it has to have a trustworthy object. So Jesus is asking, do you still not trust me? Am I or am I not trustworthy? Well, last week we looked at Jesus' question, who do you say I am? And I gave you my personal response to that question at the very end, and I left you with a question. Who do you say Jesus is? Because if he's real, that's the question. Is Jesus real? And if he is real, if he really has been raised from the dead, that, my friends, is a game changer. That changes everything. Life cannot be the same if this man has walked out of the grave.
So here's my question. Why doesn't it? Why doesn't it change everything for a lot of people who call themselves Christian? I'm going to suggest to you that I believe it's because I and you and we still need to resolve another question, and it's this question. Is Jesus trustworthy? Is Jesus trustworthy? More specifically, what has he done to give you reason to trust him? How has he demonstrated trustworthiness? Do you have an answer for that? Boom, you should. That's how fast you should have an answer to that. Because when you're in the boat and you're in the crisis... Either you've got the answer or you don't have the answer. Is he trustworthy? Here's my answer for his trustworthiness. In John 2, 18 to 22, Jesus said, okay, Jesus said that God would raise him from the dead after he was three days in the grave. Jesus said that God would raise his body from the grave three days after being in the grave. And the eyewitnesses tell us that that actually happened. Not one or two eyewitnesses, but a lot of eyewitnesses. 500, over 500 at one time, saw Jesus alive after he had been in the grave. So the eyewitnesses tell us that, yes, indeed, Jesus was raised from the dead. That means that Jesus demonstrated that his word can be trusted. Jesus' resurrection, once again, is the game changer. It is a game changer. Everything that I'm about, everything, if you call yourself a Christian, everything hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It tells me that Jesus is alive, that he is real, and that he is trustworthy. And that's why I follow Jesus, not religion, because Jesus is trustworthy. My trust is in Jesus. Jesus is trustworthy. So what difference can that make? It can reorder our loves and it can reorder our lives. Because, listen to me carefully, just very quickly, the more you're trusting Jesus, the more your greatest desire is to see his kingdom come to earth. The more you're trusting Jesus, the more your greatest desire is to see his kingdom come on earth. Because, you see, he's promised what the world is going to look like one day in all of its fullness. He's going to reorder things the way they're supposed to be. And if you're trusting that this is Jesus' word to us, and that he really is going to do that, then your greatest desire is to see that happen even in our own lifetime. Because it is broken in with his resurrection. And so the more you're trusting Jesus, the more you're trusting his word, the more you're anticipating his kingdom coming to earth And the more you're trusting Jesus, the more your life ambition will be that his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And you know what? Wherever his will is done, that's where his kingdom is showing up. You do his will tomorrow. You do it in a a lot of ways that maybe no one will ever notice. But if you are paying attention to God and you're doing what he tells you to do, you're listening to Jesus and you're doing what he tells you to do, you're doing his will, then guess what? Boom! There is his kingdom. 
Because where his kingdom comes is where his will is being done on earth as it always is being done in heaven. And so a person who, who really orients their life around Jesus as being totally trustworthy, as a person who manifests that, who gives evidence of that, listen to me, by listening to Jesus and doing what Jesus tells you to do. Right? You don't follow somebody who you don't trust. If you say that Jesus is trustworthy, you listen to what he says, and you do it. 